and welcome to another episode of Unearthing Paranormalcy, the podcast that digs into the paranormal and finds normalcy in the topic. I'm Amy. I'm Dave. And I'm Chad. And we're missing Eli again. This time he's just working. He decided he wanted money. <laughs> he does that from time to time. Don't get it. Podcast is far more fun than work. Agreed. Absolutely. All right, well, this week, we're coming at you with kind of a listener request. Back at the beginning of the year, I had asked on our Facebook group if anybody had any topics they wanted us to cover this year, and we had one person request that we look into some Indian mythology and legend. So, with that being said, into India we go. The mythology of India is vast, varied, and complex. A great comparison to her multiple cultures, languages, and beliefs. The mythology is also as diverse as the philosophy and the religion, not just way back when it was written, but even in the modern day. India has intertwined religion, literature, and philosophy in a comprehensive mythology that includes the history in its span and scope, the largest religion in modern day being Hinduism. On Hinduism, Wendio Flattery wrote, If myths are stories about the gods, it is difficult to find a Hindu story that is not mythical. Here there are more gods than men. A puzzled European remarked on India centuries ago, and the line between gods and men in Hinduism is as vague and ephemeral as the cloudy trail of the skywriter. Gods in India are no better than man. Merely more powerful. Indeed, their extraordinary powers allow them to indulge in vices on an extraordinary scale. Divine power corrupts divinely. The earliest texts are the Vedas, a series of sacred hymns in honor of the Aryan gods, which personified natural forces such as the sun, storm, fire, soma, and the like. The Vedic religion was materialistic, devoted to obtaining power, prosperity, health, and other blessings by means of ritual and sacrifice. By the time of Buddha around 500 BCE, the old Vedic religion had transformed by Brahmin priest into a hodgepodge, with the priests claiming the power for themselves. Buddha addressed himself to the problem of human suffering and discovered a way to overcome it through disciplined living that hinged on giving up one's materialistic desires. So many followers were gained, and the Vedic priests had to change their ideas and teachings so they would not wither. The result was Hinduism, a modified polytheism with three major gods, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. The central part of the classical Sanskrit literature is where we will start our dig. Written from about 1400 BCE to 1200 BCE is the Vedas, which are sacred Hindu writings. There are four Vedas, the Rig Veda, the Sama Veda, the Yagur Veda, and the Artharva Veda. Included in each of them is Samhitas, or hymns, Brahmanas, or rituals, the Aranyakas, or the theologies, and the Upanishads, or the philosophies. Most of this was enveloped in around 1000 BCE to 500 BCE. It was definitely an evolving book based around an evolving spiritual philosophy. 
The oldest document is the Rig Veda. It is a collection of 1,028 hymns composed in 1400 BCE. This is the most important part of early Hinduism, and later became known as the Brahmanas. The texts were carried on in an oral communication for centuries before they were recorded in Sanskrit. How far back the oral tradition went is unknown, but it's well preserved with all the embellishment presented by the many translations. Hindu literature is both fed from and fed the Rig Veda, and much of the early mythology has become synonymous with it. I'll get more into this great work, but before we dig too far into this, let's go over some of the Vedic and Hindu gods, goddesses, and terms. The Vedas mention several deities, sometimes just once, or by referring to them as a sibling, parent, or child of a god or goddess. What I am about to present is in no way a complete list, but a sampling of the most written about deities in the Vedas. We must also keep in mind, names for deities are also used to describe characteristics of other deities, or of great people. Take for example Prajapati, a deity that creates beings. The characteristic Prajapati could be applied to Savitar, the god of motion, renaming him Savitar Prajapati when he is creating the world. Oh, and like always, I'm probably not pronouncing most of this stuff right. That's all right. Nobody cares. Well, actually. (laughs) Indra is the main god of the Vedas. He's a hard-drinking, swaggering warrior that rides his solar chariot across the sky. He wields a thunderbolt. As a storm god, he is responsible to bring the rains to fertilize India's thirsty soil. In Buddhism, he is called Indapali. In Jainism, he's called Sadharmakalpa, which is the king of the highest heaven. In the Vedas, Indra is the king of Shvarga, which is the heavens. Now, even though Indra is declared as a king of gods in verse, the other gods are not subordinate to him. Because in Vedic thought, all gods and goddesses are equivalent and aspects of this same eternal abstract known as Brahman. The universal principle that refers to the spiritual reality underlying all phenomena. None consistently superior and none consistently inferior. All gods obey Indra, but they also obey Varuna, Vishnu, Rudra, and others as situations arise. Furthermore, Indra also accepts and follows the instructions of Savitar, the solar deity. Indra, like all Vedic deities, is part of the henotheistic theology of ancient India. Henotheistic meaning the worship of a single god while not denying the existence of other deities. In Hinduism, the numerous deities are one ultimate unitarian divine essence. Indra is portrayed in art wielding a thunderbolt known as Vajrayudra. He rides a white elephant known as Aravata. In Buddhist iconography, the elephant sometimes has three heads. Jaina icons sometimes show the elephant with five. At other times, a single elephant head has four tusks. All denote different symbolism of the numbers among the philosophies. Indra's heavenly home is Mount Meru, also called Sumeru. Max Muller was a German-born philologist and orientalist. 
who was one of the founders of the Western academic field of Indian studies and the discipline of studies of religions. He lived from December of 1823 to October of 1900. He was a Sanskrit translator and brought many tales of mythology to the West. He stated that the similarities between Indra and Thor of Norse and Germanic mythologies are significant. They are both storm gods with powers over lightning and thunder. Both carry a hammer equivalent, which returns back to their hand after it is hurled. Both are associated with bulls in the early layers of the respective texts. Both use thunder as a battle cry. They both protect mankind. Additionally, they are both benevolent giants, gods of strength, of life, of marriage, and the healing gods. Both have legends written about them, quote, milking the cloud cows, unquote. Over a quarter of the 1,028 hymns of the Rig Veda mention Indra, making him the most referred deity in the work. In post-Vedic text, Indra is depicted as an intoxicated hedonistic god. His importance declines, and he evolves to a minor deity when compared to Shiva, Vishnu, or Devi. In Hindu text, Indra is at times referred to as an aspect or avatar of Shiva. In the Sanskrit language, the term for rainbow is Indra's bow. Mount Maru, where Indra lived, is also a common type of place in many mythologies known as an axis mundi. A place which sits at the center of the world and acts as a point of contact between different levels of the universe. In most traditions, this is symbolized as a tree of life, a mountain, or a world tree. But in Greek mythology, it was the stone artifact, the Omphalos. In Sumeria, it was a man-made ziggurat located at present-day Ali Air Base in Iraq. Mitra and Varuna maintain the cosmic order. Like Indra, these gods reflect the values of the warrior caste. Mitra the sun presides over contracts and friendships, while Varuna the moon supervises oaths. In the oldest Veda known as the Rig Veda, Mitra and Varuna are almost indistinguishable. They are conceived as young monarchs wearing glistening garments and the guardians of the whole world. They reside in a golden palace that has 1,000 pillars and 1,000 doors. They support and are frequently invoked next to heaven and earth and the air between heaven and earth. They are the lords of rivers and seas. Here we start to see that whoever composed the Vedas have some idea of how gravity worked and kept the earth balanced between the sun and the moon, and also how that gravity had effect on the rivers and seas. Mitra and Varuna send rain and refreshment from the sky and wet the pastures with ghee, a dew of clarified butter. They're Eli's got to be upset that he's missing this episode. Pour some butter on me. <laughs> In the name of God. Their domain has streams that flow with honey, and their pastures have cattle that yield refreshment. They afflict those that regard them with disease. They are Asuras, a class of beings related to the more be- benevolent Devas. And like all Asuras, they wield their power through Maya, or secret knowledge. This empowers them to make both the sun traverse the sky and obscure it with clouds. Their eye is the sun, 
and they mount their chariot in the highest heavens, which they drive with the rays of the sun as with arms. They employ spies that are wise and undeceivable. They maintain orders and are barriers against falsehood. They are the leaders of the seven Adityas, the celestial sons of Aditi, which could be thought of as the seven planets presented in most mythologies. They are also known as the good Asuras, which are led by Varuna, while the malevolent Asuras are led by Vritra. The Asuras battle constantly with the Devas for the order of the cosmos. Before I tell you about the Devas, I want to tell you about Vritra. Let me tell you about my best friend. <laughs> the leader of the malevolent Asuras, also known as Ahi in the Vedas. He is a serpent or dragon that appears blocking the course of the rivers. <laughs> According to the Rig Veda, Vritra crept the waters of the world captive until he was killed by Indra. The combat between the two began soon after Indra was born. Indra drank a large volume of Soma, a ritual drink, at the house of Tvashtri for, pow- for empowerment. Tvashtri then fashioned Vajrayuja, the thunderbolt Indra would wield. During the battle, Vritra broke both of Indra's jaws but was then thrown down by Indra, and in falling, his body crushed all 99 of his fortresses and liberated the rivers. Uh, For this feat, Indra became known as Vritahan, which translates to Slayer of Vritra, and also Slayer of the Firstborn of Dragons. Vritra's mother, Danu, who was also the mother of the Daneva race of Asuras, was also attacked and defeated by Indra with his thunderbolt. In one version of the story, three devas named Varuna, Soma, and Agni were coaxed by Indra to aid him in the fight against Vritra, who they called, quote-unquote, Father. Hymn 18 of Mandala 4 provides the most elaborate account of the Vedic version. The verses describe the events and circumstances leading up to the battle between Indra and Vritra, the battle itself, and the outcome. A common myth of a storm god slaying a dragon can be seen all throughout mythology. Some examples are the Norse Thor slaying the world serpent Jormungandr, the Greek Zeus defeating Typhon, and Marduk slaying Tiamat in the Enuma Elis of Mesopotamian mythology. Outside of Indo-European cultures is the Japanese Shintoism, where the storm god Suzano'o slays the eight-headed serpent Yamanta no Oroki. Deva means heavenly divine, anything of excellent. It is also a term used for a deity in Hinduism. The feminine form of Deva is Devi. In the earliest Vedic literature, all supernatural beings were called Devas and Asuras. The concepts and legends evolved in ancient Indian literature, and by the late Vedic period of 1500 BCE to about 600 BCE, benevolent supernatural beings are referred to as deva-asuras. In post-Vedic texts, such as the Puranas and the Itahasas of Hinduism, the devas represent good and the asuras bad. Some other supernatural beings are the Yakshas, which are nature spirits, 
Then there are evil semi-divine creatures which practice black magic and afflict men with misfortune, known as the Rakshasas. Some scholars have compared the struggle between the Devas and the Asuras, in which a group of younger, more civilized, orderly gods struggle with a group of older gods who represent the forces of chaos. To the Greeks, this was the young Olympians struggling with the Titans. To the Celtic people of Ireland, this was the Tuahajadanan of life and light struggling against the Fomorians, ancient gods of death and darkness. Norse mythology has the constant battle of Aesir, or the first pantheon of Norse gods, with the Jotuns, or the giants and trolls. Now that I think about it, that first pantheon struggled with the second pantheon known as the Vanir, until they worked it out and allied with each other. Then we can't forget about the Anunnaki, which had this struggle as well. Agni is the priest god of fire. He presides at the altar and the hearth, exists as lightning, and blazes at the heart of the sun. Agni in Sanskrit means fire, and connotes the Vedic fire god of Hinduism. He is the deity of the southeast direction, and is typically found in southeast corners of Hindu temples. Agni is fire, is one of the five inner impermanent elements known as Panjkabhuta, along with space known as Akasha. Water is Ap, air is Vayu, and earth is Prithvi. With their powers combined, they form Pakriti, the empirically perceived material existence. With our powers <laughs> combined, Captain Planet! <laughs> The authors of the Vedas, much like some modern physicists, believed we hallucinate our own reality from the perception from our senses. In Vedic literature, Agni is a major and oft-invoked god, along with Indra and Soma. Soma is both a narcotic plant used in ancient ritual and a god who gives inspiration, liberates men, and presents the principles of life. So he's weed. (laughs) (laughs) or mescaline, also known as Chandra, the lunar deity of later mythology. Agni the fire god is considered the mouth of the god and goddesses and the medium that conveys offerings to them in votive ritual. In Hindu text, he is conceptualized to exist at three levels, fire on the earth, lightning in the atmosphere, and the sun in space. This triple presence connects him as a messenger between gods and human beings in Vedic thought. In the post-Vedic era, Agni declined and was internalized, evolving to metaphorically represent all transformative knowledge in the Upanishads and later Hindu literature. Agni remains an integral part of Hindu traditions, such as being the central witness of the rite of passage ritual at traditional Hindu weddings, called Saptapadi Agni Pradakshanam, meaning seven steps and mutual vows. He is also integral to Daya, or lamp festivals, such as Diwali and Aarti in Puja. In the Vedic pantheon, Agni occupies after Indra the most important position. There are over 200 hymns in the Rig Veda bearing his name. The Rig Veda opens with a hymn inviting Agni, 
who is then addressed later as the guardians of Rita, or Dharma. Dharma can mean many things. It signifies behaviors that are considered to be in accordance with Rita, the order that makes life in the universe possible. It includes duties, rights, laws, conducts, virtues, and the quote-unquote right way of living. In Buddhism, Dharma means cosmic law and order, and can be applied to mental construct or what is cognized by the mind. In Jainism, it's pertaining to the purification and moral transformation of human beings. For Sikhs, Dharma means the path of righteousness and proper religious practice. Agni is considered equivalent to all the gods in Vedic thought, which form the foundation for the various non-dualistic and monistic theologies of Hinduism. This theme is repeatedly presented in the Vedas, such as the following words in Mandala 1 of the Rig Veda. Quote, they call it Indra, Mitra, Varuna, Agni, and he is heavenly winged Garutman. To what is one, sages give many a title. They call it Agni, Yama, Matarisvan, unquote. The major festivals Holly and Diwali incorporate Agni in their ritual grammar as a symbol of divine energy. The iconography of Agni varies by region. He is shown with one to three heads, two to four arms, is typically red-complexioned, but sometimes a smoky gray. He stands next to or rides a ram. He has a halo of flames leaping upward from his crown. He is depicted as a strong, sometimes bearded man, with a large belly because he eats everything offered into his flames. His golden-brown hair, eyes, and mustache match the color of fire. Agni holds a rosary in one hand to symbolize his prayer-related role, and a sphere in another hand in eastern states of India. In other regions, his forearms hold an axe, a torch, a spoon or fan, and a flaming spear. Seven rays of light emit from his body. One of his names is Stapta meaning, quote, the one having seven tongues, unquote. <laughs> this symbolizes how rapidly he consumes sacrificial butter. <laughs> well... I wouldn't complain. <laughs> when he is not depicted with his ram, he is pulled by a chariot with seven red horses and the symbolic wind that makes fire move as the wheels of the chariot. In Khmer art, he rides a rhinoceros as his vahana. The number seven symbolizes his reach in all seven mythical continents in ancient Hindu cosmology or the colors of a rainbow in his form as the sun. Interesting that it's seven mythical continents when there actually ended up being seven continents. Yeah, that is kind of fascinating. Makes you wonder if they knew something. Especially when you actually look at the geography, there's actually really only three continents. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because they're all... Australia, everything else is kind of connected. Oh, sorry, four continents. I forgot about Antarctica. Yeah, because everything else is connected by land. In the Rig Veda, Mata Risvin recovers the fire which had been hidden from humanity. This is also a name of Agni, the sacrificial fire, the mother in which it grows being the fire stick, 
or of a divine being closely associated with Agni, a messenger of Vivisvat, bringing the hidden fire to the Breegis. Sayanon identifies him with Vayu, the wind in the Rig Veda. In the Artharva Veda and later, the word also has the meaning of air, wind, and breeze. It is also the name of Shiva, of a son of Garuda, the king of birds, a legendary bird or bird-like creature in Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain mythology. Agni is also the name of a Rishi, an enlightened person. I feel like you're just making these names up. (laughs) The theft of fire for the benefit of humanity is a theme that occurs in many mythologies. According to the Greek Hesiod, the titan Prometheus stills the heavenly fire for humanity, thus enabling the progress of civilization. In the book of Enoch, the fallen angels in Azazel teach early humanity to use tools and fire. The Rig Veda speaks of the hero Matarisvan, who recovered fire which had been hidden from humanity. So somebody always brings us the fire. Because we didn't stop the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. You beat me to it. (laughs) Bryaspati is the god of incantation and ritual, the personification of priestly magic. It also refers to different mythical figures depending on the age of the text. In ancient Hindu literature, he is a Vedic-era sage who counsels the gods. In some medieval texts, the word refers to the planet Jupiter. In hymn 50 of Book 4. Book 4, Book 4, Book 4. It doesn't work as well as Book of the Law, Book of the Law. (laughs) I do got a clear path for you later for that. (laughs) But in Book 4, he is described as a sage from the first great light. The one who drove away the darkness is bright and pure and carries a special bow whose string is Ritra, the cosmic order, a basis of Dharma. He is considered guru by all the devas, as his knowledge and character is revered. In other Vedic texts, he is called by the names Brahmanaspati, Purohita, and Agni Rasa, the son of Agni Ras and Bisaya. He is at times identified with the god Agni. His wife is Tara, the goddess who personifies the stars in the sky. In the Mahabharata, the son of Brihapati is named Brahadvaja and is the counselor of the Pandavas. Brihaspati has a body of gold, striped blue legs, and a halo of moon and stars. He holds different items depending on the region. In parts of Southeast Asia, he holds a container of Soma, with a tiger at his side. Elsewhere, he carries a stick, a lotus, and beads. In medieval mythologies, his wife Tara was abducted by Chandra, the moon deity. She bore a son named Buddha, the planet Mercury, not the Buddha of Buddhism. Aditi is a Vedic goddess, the personification of the infinite. She is the goddess of sky, consciousness, the past, the future, and fertility. She is the mother of the celestial deities known as the Adityas, such as Indra, Surya, Mitra, Varuna, Vaman, and so on. She is referred to as the mother of many gods, as celestial mother of every existing form and being, 
the synthesis of all things. She is associated with akasha, or space, and veik, or mysterious speech and sound. She may be seen as the feminized form of Brahma, and associated with the prime substance in Vatana, in Vatanta, a school of Hindu philosophy. In the Rig Veda, she is mentioned 80 times. The verse, quote, Daksha sprang from Aditi, and Aditi sprang from Daksha, unquote, is seen by Theosophist as a reference to, quote, the eternal cyclic rebirth of the same divine essence, unquote. I just want to say that I'm glad you're the one that has to read these names because you're coming up with things that I would not have come up with with some of these words. <laughs> <laughs> Aditi with sage Kashyapa had 33 sons, out of which 12 were called Adityas, 11 were called Rudras, and 8 are called Vasus. Aditi is said to be the mother of the great god Indra, and the mother of gods. In the Vedas, Aditi is Devamata, literally mother to the celestial gods, and in her cosmic matrix all the heavenly bodies were born. Vishnu was born to her in his avatar Vimana, in the fifth month of the Hindu calendar called Avani or Shravana. Many auspicious signs appeared in the heavens, foretelling the good fortune of this child. In the Rig Veda, in the Rig Veda specifically, Aditi is one of the most powerful figures of all. As a mothering presence, Aditi is often asked to guard the one who petitions her, or to provide him or her with wealth, safety, and abundance. Though there is no single hymn addressed exclusively to her in the Rig Veda, maybe because she is not related to a particular natural phenomena like other gods. Compared to Yushas or Prithvi, she can be defined as a cosmic creator. Aditi means freedom. It includes the root da, to bind or fetter, and suggests another attribute of her character. As a deity, she is an unbound free soul, and it is evident in the hymn she is often called to free the petitioner from different hindrances like sin or sickness. As one who unbinds, her role is similar to that of her son Varuna, as the guardian of Rita. She is also called the supporter of creatures. A deity can also mean one of its kind or unique. A deity is a direct challenge to the idea that the Vedic peoples were patriarchal. A deity was regarded as both the sky goddess and the earth goddess, which is a very unique for prehistorical civilization. Most of these civilizations venerated a dual principle sky father, and if there were two or more gods, there might be an earth mother. Aditi was attributed the status of first deity by the Vedic culture, although she is not the only one at attributed this status in the Vedas. In the Rig Veda, she is addressed as mighty. It throws me off when you say Aditi, because I'm thinking you're saying a deity. Me too. I was yeah, actually I'm thinking like, the same thing uh, a few times. Getting confused, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's her name. Aditi is the name of the uh, deity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Savitar is an Aditya, or one of Aditya's children. In Vedic Sanskrit, the name connotes impeller, rouser, and vivifier. 
He is the God of motion. Whatever moves or acts is dependent on this God. He has golden eyes, hands, and tongues. He is sometimes associated with, and at other times distinguished from Surya, the sun. When distinct from the sun, he is conceived as the divine influence or vivifying power of the sun. The sun before sunrise is called Sabater, and after sunrise and still sunset is known as Surya. Savitar is celebrated in 11 hymns of the Rig Veda and in parts of many others, 170 altogether. He disappeared as an independent deity from the Hindu pantheon after the end of the Vedic period. But in modern Hinduism, his name occurs in the well-known Gayatri Mantra. Savitar's name is worth breaking down because it denotes an agent in the form of the root suffix tr, or tr, added to the end. There's an entire series of Vedic theonyms which bear this. Uh, to name a few, there's Dotter, the creator, Trotter, the protector, and Phosphor, the fashioner. These agent gods create, protect, produce, and do what would be considered the duties of their office. Savitar is known by many names in the Vedas, at least once referred to Apanapat, the child of the waters, which is a characteristic given to Agni and Soma as well. Savitar is depicted as Prajapati of the world. A couple times in the Brahmins, one of them states it as Prajapati becoming Savitar, created living beings. I'll go more into that later on. Twice in the Rig Veda, Savitar is described as Damunus, or domestic, a characteristic otherwise only limited to Agni. He is called an Ashura in many hymns of the Rig Veda. Savitar alone is the lord of vivifying power, and on account of his movements he becomes Pusan. In two consecutive verses, they are described and connected. In the first, the favor of Pusan, who sees all beings as invoked, and in the second, Savitar is believed to stimulate the thoughts of the worshiper, who desires to think of the excellent brilliance of the deva. Savitar is also said to become Mitra, the god of the sun, by reasons of his laws. Savitar, Savitar is also the name of a flash villain from the comic books. Hmm. Nerd alert. He's actually one of my favorite villains from the Flash comic books. What's your second favorite? Reverse Flash. That's a good one, too. Yushis is the Vedic goddess of dawn in Hinduism. She is beautiful, charming, and a source of delight to all creatures. She repeatedly appears in the Rig Vedic hymns, where she drives away the oppressive darkness, chases away evil, demons, sets things in motion, and sends everyone off to their duties. She is the life of all living creatures, impeller of action and breath, a foe of confusion and chaos. She arouses Rita, or the cosmic and moral order. Mm-hmm. The most exalted god of the Rig Veda, though not as important as Agni, Soma, or Indra, she is on par with them often portrayed as a beautifully adorned young woman riding in a golden chariot or a hundred chariots, 
drawn by golden red horses or cows, her path, making way across the sky for the sun god Surya. Her sister is Ratri, the goddess of the night. Surya is a Sanskrit word that means the sun. Synonyms of this in ancient Indian literature include Ayaditya, Arka, Banu, Savitar, Pushan, Ravi, Martanda, Mitra, Bhaskara, and Vivasvan. Surya also connotes the solar deity in Hinduism. Surya is one of the five deities considered as aspects in mean to realizing Brahma in the Smarta tradition. Surya is often depicted riding a chariot led by horses, most often seven of them, symbolizing the seven colors of visible light and the seven days of the week. In medieval Hinduism, Surya is a characteristic for Shiva, Brahma, and Vishnu. In some ancient texts, Surya is presented syncretically with Indra, Ganesha, and others. Surya is also found in the arts and literatures of Buddhism and Jainism. Surya is depicted with a chakra, interpreted as a Dharma chakra. Surya is also one of the twelve heavenly houses in the zodiac system of Hindu astrology. There are many major festivals and pilgrimages of Surya. He has survived as a primary deity in Hinduism longer than any of the original Vedic deities, save for Vishnu. The temples that have been built to Surya, and some existing ones, have been rededicated, mostly to Shiva. In the layers of Vedic texts, Surya is one of the several trinities, along with Agni and either Vayu or Indra which are presented as an equivalent icon and aspect of the Hindu metaphysical concept called the Brahman. Surya in Indian literature is referred to by various names, which typically represent different aspects or characteristics of the sun. Thus, Savitar refers to one that rises and sets a characteristic named of the god of motion. Aditya means one with splendor. Mitra refers to the sun as, quote, the great luminous friend of all mankind, unquote, while Pushan refers to the sun as the illuminator that helped the devas win over the asuras who use darkness. Yusha's sister Ratri is a Vedic goddess mostly associated with the night. The majority of references to Ratri in the Rig Veda are associated with Yusha's. Along with her Along with her, Ratri is considered a powerful mother and strengthener of vital power. She represents the cyclic rhythmic patterns of the cosmos. She isn't described in detail except as a beautiful maiden. In later tantric texts, she occupies an important position in the Rig Veda. She is associated with Yushas, Indra, Rita, and Satya. In the Artharva Veda, she is only associated with Surya. The Brahmins and the Sutra literature met in Ratri over and over again. Pushan is a Vedic solar deity and one of the Adityas, the god of meeting, responsible for marriages, journeys, roads, the feeding of cattle, the guiding of travelers. He can be thought of as the one that brings all things into relationship. He is also a psychopomp, or a soul guide that ushers the souls of the dead to the other world. 
He has protected travelers from bandits, wild beasts, and exploitation by other men. He is a supportive guide leading adherents towards wealth and rich pastures. He carries a golden lance as a symbol of activity. Ten hymns are dedicated to Puchin in the Rig Veda. Sometimes he is described as driving the sun in its course across the sky, though he seems more to represent the sun as a guardian of flocks and herds. Pushin is also regarded as Kavi, who in turn became a characteristic of a number of gods, and a title signifying king. Rudra is associated with wind or storm and the hunt. One translation of his name is the roarer. In the Rig Veda, he is praised as the mightiest of the mighty. He is the personification of terror. Depending on the period, Rudra can be meant as the most severe roarer or howler, possibly meaning hurricane, or it is meant as the most frightening one. The Sri Rudran hymn from the Yagardeva is dedicated to Rudra. It is very important in the Shaivism sect of Hinduism. The Hindu god Shiva shares several features with Rudra and has been taken as a synonym for the god Shiva, with the two names used interchangeably. Prajapati is the master of created beings, the father of gods and demons, and the protector of those who procreate. Within the Vedic text, his role varied as the one who created heaven and earth all of the water and beings, the chief, the father of gods, the creator of the devas and asuras, the cosmic egg or the spirit. His role peaked in the Brahmans later in the Vedic text, then declined to becoming a group of helpers in the creation process. The term Prajapati is also applied to several different gods depending on the text, which range from the creator god to the same as any of the following gods. Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, Agni, Indra, and many others. According to George Williams, who might help with this confusion, quote, The inconsistent, varying, and evolving Prajapati concept in Hindu mythology reflects the diverse Hindu cosmology. In classical and medieval literature, Prajapati is equated to the metaphysical concept called Brahman as Prajapati Brahman or alternatively, Brahman is described as one who existed before Prajapati. Unquote. Prajapati is a distinct Vedic deity, but whose significant diminishes. Later, the term is synonymous with other gods, particularly Brahma, Vishnu, or Shiva. Later, the term evolves further to mean any divine, semi-divine, or human sage who creates something new. In the Rig Veda is described the Haryana Garba, the golden embryo that was born from the waters containing everything, which produced Prajapati. It then created Mana, the mind, Kama, the desire, and Tapas, the heat. But this Prajapati is typically viewed as a metaphor, one of many Hindu cosmology theories, as there is no supreme deity in the Rig Veda. Creation or Prajapati in the Rig Veda is more a gradual process completed in stages of trial and improvement rather than a perfectly created specimen by a supreme all-knowing deity. 
The Ashvins are twin Vedic gods of medicine associated with the dawn. In the Rig Veda, they are described as youthful divine twin horsemen, traveling by chariot, drawn by horses that are never weary. They are an instance of the Proto-Indo-European divine horse twins. In other mythologies like the Baltic, they are the Asvienae. In the Greek mythology, they are Castor and Pollux. And they are possibly even the hin- English Hengist and Horsa. There's also the Welsh Bron Monauendan. The first mention of the Nasatya twins is from the Mitanni documents of the 2nd millennium BCE, where they are invoked in a treaty between Sapiluluima and Shatiwaza, the respective king of the Hittites and the Mitanni, which, if we remember back to the Anunnaki episode, used to swear their treaties by the names of the old gods. The Ashvins are often associated with rescuing mortals and bringing them back to life. According to the Rig Veda, Reba was bound, stabbed, and cast into the waters for nine days and ten nights before being saved by the twins. He was described as dead when the twins quote-unquote raised him up to save him. Buju was also saved after his father or evil companions abandoned him at sea. When the twins, quote, brought him home from the dead ancestors, unquote, the twins are also described as, quote, unquote, bringing light, as they gave, quote, light bringing help, unquote, to Buju, and, quote, raised Reba up to see the sun, unquote. The Ashvins are invoked at dawn the time of their principal sacrifice, and thus have a close connection to the dawn goddess Eusius. She is bidden to wake them up. Then they follow her in her chariot. She is born when they hitch their steeds, and their chariot is once said to have arrived before her. Because they are constantly associated with the return from darkness, the twins are referred to as quote-unquote darkness slayers. To invoke them, use the formula, you who have made light for mankind. Their horses and chariots are described as uncovering the covered darkness. In the following story, the Ashvins, or the divine twins, are called Dazra and Nasatya. One day, Dazra and Nasatya were stopped in their travels by the sight of the most delicate and elegant woman, who was taking a bath in a stream near her home. This was Sakanya, or Fair Maid. She was the wife of the aged Rishi Kayavana, who had held her hand in marriage for many years, and to whom she had pledged her heart and eternal devotion. The twins were stunned by the sight of her beauty, and they flew to her side, their pearly smiles flashing as they moved forward to greet her. You were the most beauteous of all creatures, fair limbed girl. Who is your father, and how is it that you have been allowed to bathe alone here in these woods? Why, I am the wife of Kayavana, and I bathe here each day. The twins shook with laughter. How could your father bear for you to give your hand to someone so old and near death? You are the very essence of beauty, fair maiden, and yours should have been the choice of every man. I love Kayavana. 
Sukanya prepared to dress. Leave your husband. Come away with us and have a taste of youth. You'll have a life with us, and our beauty will be the perfect complement to one another. Sakanya refused their offer and turned to leave. We are medicine men, and we will make your husband young again and fair of face. If we do so, fair maiden, will you agree to choose between us and a husband for life? Sakanya consulted with her husband, who agreed to the plan. And the Ashvins did as they had promised. Within a few moments, Kayavana was at their sides, and all three men entered the pool and sank to its depths. There was a pause, and then they emerged, all three equal, all three identical, all three in unison said, Choose among us, Sakanya. The fair maiden searched carefully for traces of her husband, and when she found them, she chose him to be her lord and husband for the remainder of her life. Kayavana had suffered no indignities, and from this faithful interlude he had had his youth returned to him. He smiled widely, and in gratitude to the Ashvin twins, he promised to win for them the right to sit with the gods and share in their offerings. The twins went on their way again, fleet of foot, and then high in their gilded chariot. The happy couple lived together in great joy, gods in their own home. The gods of the Vedic pantheon are complex, and this is just a few that have remained a part of Hindu mythology for centuries. Their importance was diminished by the entrance of a new and more complicated order of gods. W.O. Flattery writes, They became literary and metaphorical fixtures, rather than numerous deities. Indra is mocked for his gargantuan sexual and alcoholic appetites depicted as a womanizer, a coward, and a liar. Yama remains king of the dead, though he now functions like Indra as a mere pawn of the true god Shiva and Vishnu. The myth about these two great gods and other minor divinities of the post-Vedic period are found in the Sanskrit text composed from about 500 BCE until well into the medieval period and are frequently retold to the present day. In addition to the two major gods, Shiva and Vishnu, there are others who are still worshipped today. Many scholars argue that Vishnu and Shiva are essentially identical and are indistinguishable from Brahma or the Creator. Shiva, a Sanskrit word meaning auspicious one, is a more remote god than Vishnu. Shiva is regarded as both destroyer and restorer. He is more difficult to understand than Vishnu. Views about Shiva may have become convoluted, merging roles that were once assigned to various various earlier gods. But the difference between Vishnu and Shiva lie in their presentation. For as Jan Naffert points out, the difference between the gods is not their function, but their character, their qualities. Each god, by his specific nature, teaches us something about the universe that we had not seen before, because each god highlights a unique aspect of creation, and with that, of our own world of dreams, our own deepest soul. End quote. Remember the talk we had about Brahma referring to the spiritual reality underlying all phenomena? 
And remember how I was telling you that sometimes characteristics become deities in the pantheon? This is exactly what we get with Brahma, who emerged from the golden egg created by the waters of chaos and then established every universe. He's also known as Shvayambu, which means self-born, or he is simply the creative aspect of Vishnu. Vajaisa, or the Lord of Speech, was the creator of the four Vedas, one from each of his mouths. Brahma is consort of Saraswati and father of the four Kumaras, plus many other sages called Rishis. Due to his creator aspect, Brahma is synonymous with Parajapti. He is known by many names I won't even try to mispronounce, but the translations are God of Vedas, God of Knowledge, Having Four Faces, Self-Born, and many, many others. Brahma is part of the Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, Trimurti, or Trinity of Gods. Several Puranas describe Brahma as emerging from a lotus connected to the navel of Lord Vishnu, while other Puranas suggest Brahma was born from Shiva or his aspects. Brahma is also further described as a form or saguna of the otherwise formulous Nigura. Brahma is the ultimate metaphysical reality in Vedic Hinduism. In an alternate version, some Puranas state him to be the father of Prajapadis. According to some, Brahma does not enjoy popular worship in the present age, and thus has a lesser importance than the other two members of the Trimurti, Vishnu and Shiva. Revered in ancient texts, yet rarely worshipped as a primary deity anymore. I want to point out that a Brahmin priest is spelled with an I instead of an A, and those are the Varna class of Hinduism. They specialize as priests, teachers, and protectors of sacred learning across the generations. So if I say a Brahmin priest, it doesn't mean a priest of Brahma. It's one of these instead. Traditionally, the occupation was the priesthood at the Hindu temples or its social and religious ceremonies and rite of passage rituals. Maya is the veil of illusion. It's what deludes human beings into materialism. Maya, like Brahma in concept, has many meanings in Indian philosophies depending on the context. These evolve over time with the evolving religions. In the ancient Vedic literature, it literally means extraordinary power and wisdom, as materialism wasn't shunned at the time. In later Vedic text and modern literature to each Indian tradition, Maya connotes a, quote, magic show, an illusion where things appear to be present but are not what they seem, unquote. I think this signifies the period after the Vedic priests were hoarding the power for themselves, before Hinduism emerged from the redistribution of spiritual powers. Maya is also a spiritual concept connoting, quote, that which exists but is constantly changing and thus is spiritually unreal, unquote, and the, quote, power or the principle that conceals the true character of spiritual reality, unquote. In Buddhism, Maya is the name of Gautama Buddha's mother. In Hinduism, Maya is a characteristic or title for a goddess, and the name of a goddess of wealth, prosperity, and love, 
one of the manifestations of Lakshmi, the wife and consort of Vishnu. The transmigration of souls refers to the tendency of souls to incarnate themselves in various material forms. This ranges from the mineral to the superhuman. Since soul matter is indestructible, each soul lives innumerable lives. Karma refers to the debt of sin incurred, not only in past lives, but also in the present life. Also known as a bitch. (laughs) It could be thought of as a debt that must be paid before the soul is to reach perfection. Vishnu is the supreme Hindu god. He rests on the cosmic waters between creations or universes. And in each universe, he takes on some material form or avatar. These have been recorded as a fish, a wild boar, a turtle, a lion, a dwarf, and man. In Indian literature, some names of his incarnations are Rama of the Ramayana and Krishna of the Mahabharata. Worship to Vishnu is marked by affectionate piety and devotion. Being one of the principal deities of Hinduism, also known in the Trimurti or Trinity as the Preserver. His adopted avatars preserve and protect dharmic principles whenever a world is threatened with evil, chaos, and destructive forces. Depending on the Purana of the Parata or the Mahabharata, his names and incarnations are listed as low as 108 and as high as over 1,000. These works also include descriptions of the qualities or aspects of each of the avatars of Vishnu. To give some examples, when known as the Vishnu Sahasamana, he is the omnipresent. As Hari, he is the remover of sins. As Kala, time. As Atman, the soul. As Purusa, the divine being, and as Prakriti, the divine nature. Vishnu is depicted as having a blue-to-black complexion, earrings in the shape of sharks, a garland of flowers around his neck with bees flying about it. He has a curl of hair on his chest, known as the Srivasta mark. His forearms hold a conch in the upper left, a lotus flower in the lower left, a discus in the upper right, and a mace in the lower right. His silk trousers are colored yellow. The bow of Vishnu is the Sharanga. His sword is the Nandaka. A traditional depiction of Vishnu has him reclining on the coils of the serpent Shisha, with his consort Lakshmi by his side as he, quote, dreams the universe into reality, unquote. In Hinduism, particularly Vaishnavism, the triad, trinity, or trimurti represents three fundamental forces through which each universe is created, maintained, and destroyed in cyclic succession. Brahma represents passion and creation. Vishnu represents goodness and preservation. And Shiva represents darkness and destruction. All have the same meaning of three in one. Different forms or manifestations of one, the supreme being. In the scriptures of Sikhism, Vishu is called Gorak. While some Hindus consider Buddha an incarnation of Vishnu, the Buddhists of Sri Lanka venerate Vishnu as the custodian deity of Sri Lanka 
and the protector of Buddhism. Shiva is an extremely important Hindu god, the dancing deity of both creation and destruction. He has four arms and a third eye on his forehead with which he destroys. As the supreme deity in Shaivism, his worship is marked by asceticism, which means severe discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence. While not mentioned in the Vedas, most scholars accept that Rudra and Shiva are synonymous. Shiva is known as the destroyer within the Trimurti, with Brahma and Vishnu. But in the Shaivism tradition, Shiva is one of the supreme beings who creates, protects, and transforms the universe. In the Shaktism tradition, the goddess, or Deva, is described as one of the supreme, yet Shiva is a revered along with Vishnu and Brahma. A goddess is stated to be the energy and creative power of each, with Pavardi or Sati the equal complementary partner of Shiva. In the Smarta tradition, he is one of the five equivalent deities in Panchayatana Puja. According to the Shaivism sect, the highest form of Ishvar is formless, limitless, transcendent, and unchanging absolute Brahman, and the primal Atman, or soul, of the universe. Shiva is depicted as either benevolent or fearsome. In benevolent aspects, he is an omniscient yogi who lives an aesthetic life on Mount Kailash, the center of the world with wife Pavardi and their two children, Ganesha and Kartikeya. In his fierce aspects, he is depicted slaying demons. Shiva is known as Adiyogi Shiva, patron god of yoga, meditation, and arts. Depicted with a serpent around his neck, a blue throat, the adorning crescent moon, and the holy river Ganja flowing from his matted hair, the third eye on his forehead, the trident as his weapon, and the Damaru drum. Shiva is a pan-Hindu deity referred widely by Hindus in India, Nepal, and Sri Lanka. As the lord of the yogis and the teacher of yoga to the sages, the supreme guru who, quote, teaches in silence the oneness of one's innermost self, Atman, with the ultimate reality, Brahman, unquote. Shiva is a god of ambiguity and paradox, whose attributes include opposing themes. I have some tales of Shiva to share before we continue. Now, Rudra is synonymous with Shiva. On the day that Rudra was born, the earth was lit from within. Into the world came a boy, but he entered crying, and Prajapati said to him, Why do you weep when you have been born after toil? The boy said then, My evil has not been cleansed from me, and I have not been given a name. Give one to me now, he begged, and so Prajapati announced, Thou art Rudra. Now Rudra, or Shiva, as he came to be known, was created by Brahma in order to create the world, and in order for him to do so, he required a wife. A goddess is a god's other half, and both of these halves must work together to create the energy necessary for divine acts. Brahma realized that Shiva would need a partner, and so it was arranged that he would have one. Now Daksha was not happy about marrying his youngest daughter to Shiva, for it had come to his notice once before at a festival 
that he had not offered homage to Doksha. Being a man of small mind, Doksha had held this against him as a grudge, and had pronounced a curse upon Shiva that he would receive none of the offerings made to the gods. A wandering Brahmin, however, had been witness to the curse, and laid down a contrary curse in order that Doksha should have nothing in his life but the wastage of material goods and pleasures. As Sati grew, she knew her future was with Shiva, and she quietly worshipped him. When she reached an age at which she was suitable to marry, Satli was given a swayamvara, or own choice, to which he invited gods, princes, and men of all great ranks from around the country. Sati was handed a wreath, and with great excitement she entered the assembly of men, eagerly searching the crowds for Shiva. Now Shiva had not been invited to the Swayamvara, for Daksha wanted nothing more to do with him. But he had not counted on the deep feelings of his youngest daughter. Her despair crumpled her young face, and as she stared out into the crowd, she felt nothing but the love for Shiva. Calling out his name, she threw her wreath and made to retreat. But there, in the middle of the court, her prayer had been answered. Summoned by her heartfelt cry, Shiva had responded and he stood there now, her wreath around his noble neck. Daksha was bound by honor to marry his daughter to Shiva, and it was with great bitterness that he said, Though unwilling, I will give my daughter to this impure and proud abolisher of rights and demolisher of barriers, like the word of a Veda to a Sudra. The happy couple traveled at once to Shiva's home in Kailas. His palate was exquisite with every luxury, and catered for by all manner of servants and women. But Shiva was not content with the good things alone, and he spent many hours wandering the hills surrounding Kailas, dressed in the robes of a beggar, his bedraggled wife Sati at his side. But Sati and Shiva were one day dressed well, and out to seek some air in their chariot when Sati received Daksha's invitation to take part in a great sacrifice that he was about to make. Because of the enmity between the two men, Shiva had not been invited. Sati was broken-hearted when Shiva explained to her, The former practice of the gods has been that, in all sacrifices, no portion should be divided to me. By custom, established by the earliest arrangements, the gods lawfully allot me no share in the sacrifice. But Sati was determined to attend the sacrifice, and although Shiva tried to dissuade her, she set off for her father's home. She was received there without honor, for she rode on the back of Shiva's bull, and she wore the dress of a beggar. Daksha immediately became the victim of her tongue, for she gave him a sharp redressing for his treatment of Shiva the good, But in the middle of her speech, her father broke in, calling Shiva nothing more than a goblin, a beggar, and an ashman. Sadi, who had found great peace with her husband, announced, Shiva is friend to all, father. No one but you speaks ill of him. All that you are saying his people know, and yet they love those qualities in him, for he is a man of peace and goodness. Saudi paused now and thought for a moment. Then with a fire that glinted from her eyes, she made a decision and spoke once more. A wife 
when her lord is reviled, if she cannot slay the evil speakers, must leave the place and close her ears until she hears no more. Or if she has the power, she must take her own life. And this I will do, for I am deeply shamed to have a body that was once a part of your own. And so it was that Saudi released the fire within her and fell at the feet of her father. Saudi was dead. The news of his dear wife's death reached Shiva within moments, and he tore at his hair with a frenzy of despair and fury. His eyes glowed red and then gold, and with all the energy he could summon, he called forth a demon as terrible as there ever was. This demon kissed the feet of Shiva and pledged to undertake any request he might have. Shiva sped out the words, hardly able to control his great anger. Lead my army against Daksha, and take care that his sacrifice is destroyed. And so the demon flew at once to the assembly, and with Shiva's gone as he broke the vessels, polluted the offerings, insulted the holy men, then, with one fell swoop, cut off the head of Daksha, and tainted the guests with smears of his fresh blood. Then the demon returned to Shiva and Kailas, but he was deep in meditation and could not be reached. Brahma prayed to him to pardon Daksha, and to ease the suffering of the injured gods and rishis who had been in attendance at the sacrifice. So Shiva lifted himself from his deep dreams and proceeded to Daksha's home, where he permitted his dead wife's father, the head of a goat, which would allow him to live. Shiva was invited then to the sacrifice and allowed to partake of the offerings. Daksha looked upon him with reverence, and as he did so, Vishnu appeared on the back of Garuda. He spoke then to Daksha with a gentleness that touched the hearts of all who saw him. Only the unlearned deem myself and Shiva indistinct. He and I and Brahma are as one. We have different names, for we are creation, preservation, and destruction. But we three make up one as a whole. We are the tribune self. We pervade all creatures. The wise, therefore, regard all others as themselves. And then as the crowds cheered and saluted, these most wise and noble gods, the three parts of the universe left and went their separate ways. Shiva to his garden where he fell once more into the solace of his dreams. I got uh, one more for you. There are many legends of Shiva's dance, and another is recounted here. Shiva heard word that there were in the forest of Taragam 10,000 rishis who had become heretics who taught a false religion. Shiva was determined that they should know the truth, and he summoned his brother Vishnu to take the form of a beautiful woman and to accompany him to the forest. Shiva himself dressed as a yogi, and he wore his customary rags and ashes. As they entered the forest, they were immediately set upon by the wild wives of the rishis, women whose lust for men caused them to throw themselves at Shiva in his yogi disguise. The rishis themselves were attracted to Vishnu as well. And so there was pandemonium as the unholy men and women crowded round the two visitors, clawing at them. And then there was silence. For all at once it had occurred to the people of Taragim Forest that things were not quite right. And gathering together they threw curses at the visitors, 
a sacrificial fire was built, and then from it was called a mighty tiger, who flung himself upon Shiva in order to eat him whole. Shiva plucked at the tiger and set him to one side, removing his skin whole and causing the heretics to gasp. He wrapped the skin around himself like a shawl, and then, as the rishis produced a serpent more terrible than even Kaliya, he wound it around his neck and began to move. A malevolent dwarf goblin took the center of the room, swinging his great club with one purpose alone. Shiva dealt with him easily, and with one foot pressed upon its back, he began to twirl and to execute an angry dance. The heavens opened and the gods lined the walls, anxious to witness the splendid fervor of Shiva in action. The rishis watched in an amazement that fed their diminished beliefs so that they threw themselves down before Shiva and proclaimed him as their most glorious god. Shiva's dance lived on in their memories, and Shiva and his dance were invoked on more than one occasion by everyone who had borne witness. Some believe that when devotion is fading, Shiva will appear in dance. For when the faithless see this dance, there can be nothing but conviction in their hearts. Parvati, or Sadi, is the wife of Shiva, a goddess symbolic of his power and ruthless in her battles against demons under her various names and aspects. She is the Hindu goddess of fertility, love, beauty, marriage, children, and devotion, as well as divine strength and power. She is the mother goddess of Hinduism. In the literature, it gives her 100 names for each of her aspects depending on the region. She forms one leg of the trinity of Hindu goddesses, or Tridevi, along with Lakshmi, the wife of Vishnu, and Saraswati, the wife of Brahma. The Puranas also say she is the sister of Vishnu. She is the divine energy between a man and a woman like the energy of Shiva and Shakti. She is also one of the five deities worshipped in the Smarta tradition of Hinduism. Parvati, or Sati, is the wife of Shiva, a goddess symbolic of his power, and ruthless in her battle against demons under her various names and aspects. She is the Hindu goddess of fertility, love, beauty, marriage, children, and devotion as well as divine strength and power. She is the mother goddess of Hinduism. In the literatures, it gives her a hundred names for each of her aspects, depending on the region. She forms one leg of the trinity of Hindu goddesses or Tridevi, along with Lakshmi, wife of Vishnu, and Saraswati, wife of Brahma. The Puranas also say she is the sister of Vishnu. She is the divine energy between a man and a woman like the energy of Shiva and Shakti. She is also one of the five deities worshipped in the Smarta tradition of Hinduism. Along with Shiva, she is a central deity in the Shaiva sect. In Hindu belief, she is the recreative energy and power of Shiva, and she is the cause of a bond that connects all beings and a means of their spiritual release. In the Shakta Dharma denomination of Hinduism, the female Tridevi goddesses are given the intimate roles of Creatrix, or Mahasadaswati, Preservatrix, or Mahalakshmi, and Destructix, or Mahakali. Maha means mother. In this denomination, the male Trimurti gods are the agents and 
relegated as auxiliary deities to the goddess, rather than the other way around. Shakti, or Vimarsh, is the power that is latent in pure consciousness, required to reach pure consciousness and essential to create, sustain, and destroy. Just as energy changes from one form to another, as it can never be created or destroyed, Devi took many incarnations to do different tasks. God is both male and female. All forms of energy or powers of gods are with the Trimurti in the form of Marasaraswati, Mahalakshmi, and Mahakali, meaning a non-dimensional god creates Thushristi Shakti, or Marasaraswati, meaning sound or knowledge, preserves through Mahalakshmi, meaning light or resources, and destroys through Mahakali, meaning heat or strength. But it is also seen that God cannot create, generate, or destroy, because God does not possess any attribute. So true energy, or Adi Shakti, does everything on God's behalf. Pavardi, or her demon-fighting aspect Kali, is the goddess of power, beauty, love, and spiritual fulfillment, as well as a consort of Shiva, the destroyer. She also represents the transformational power of divinity, the power that dissolves the multiplicity of the Hindu gods into their unity. Her mount is a lion. Saraswati is the goddess of learning, arts, and cultural fulfillment, as well as consort of Brahma, the creator. She is cosmic intelligence, cosmic consciousness, and cosmic knowledge. Her mount is a swan. Lakshmi is the goddess of wealth, fertility, and material fulfillment, as well as consort to Vishnu, the preserver. Lakshmi does not signify mere material wealth, mind you, but also abstract prosperity, such as glory, magnificence, joy, exaltation, and greatness. Her mount is an owl. Ganesha is the popular god of prosperity, a son of Shiva and Pavardi, with four arms and an elephant head. In Hindu mythology, Parvati made Ganesha from clay and turned the clay into flesh and blood. Similarities of this is found in the Epic of Gilgamesh, where Enkidu is created by the goddess Aruru out of clay. In Greek mythology, Prometheus molded men out of water and earth. There are many, many other tales that include this concept throughout mythologies. Ganesha is also known as Ganapati and Vinayaka. He is one of the best known and most worshipped in the Hindu pantheon. His image is found in India, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Fiji, Thailand, Mauritius, Bali, Indonesia, and Bangladesh. He is not specific to Hindu denominations, as Hindus worship him regardless of affiliations. Devotion to Ganesha extends to Jains and Buddhists as well. He is revered as a remover of obstacles, the patron of arts and sciences, and the deva of intellect and wisdom. His elephant head makes him easy to distinguish. As the god of beginnings, he is honored at the start of rites and ceremonies. Ganesha is also invoked as patron of letters and learning during writing sessions. On our next episode... We will dig deeper into the Vedas, 
I'll paraphrase the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, and read some tales of Krishna, the avatar of Vishnu depicted in the Mahabharata. Good job, Dave. Thank you, Dave. I feel smarter. And I really dig the the uh, the myths and the religion itself. So yeah, I do it's, too. It's very, very interesting, and I really like it. In doing this research and looking through articles and things, I'm really big into like the Indian culture, their imagery, and I was telling Dave the other night, you know, there's something absolutely gorgeous about an Indian ceremony and all, especially a wedding ceremony, all the bright colors and the dancing and like everything is just, it's, it's beautiful. And, um, we were actually today we were on, was it prime? Uh, yeah. Amazon prime. And they actually have, um, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana Ramayana broken down into like cartoons on there. So you can watch and get the stories from it. Um, we'll go more into those next episode. And there's a few stories in there that David was reading to me. And I was like, these are awesome stories. Like I really like the epics. Like it's, they're really intriguing and interesting. And yeah, on our next episode, this one was mostly terms and names and things on the next one. We'll really start to unpack this. And if, if you've ever studied any of theosophy, uh, Madame Blavatsky spoke a lot of, um, uh, Indian and Vedic mythology and stuff. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of occultic knowledge within it. Well, and you know, just like with the, um, the Anunnaki and everything, there's so much that ties together with like basic Christian principles mm-hmm. that every, every new religion I learn about and I, I see these correlations not only does it prove to me that some of the, something must have happened, you know, for them all to be similar, but at the same time, it reaffirms my my belief that they're all the same. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, it doesn't matter what the name is; all the religions, all the gods, are the same. Mm-hmm. It's just this area of the world called it this, and this area of the world called it that. Yeah, I I always make comparisons with other mythologies, not really to show that they had contact with each other and like stole from each other, but more in the aspect that a lot of these were created independently of each other. Yeah. Just these these age old tales like like universal truths and stuff. Um, You know, I mean, all spiritual paths lead to enlightenment. Yeah. So you're really on to something with that. It's all just oneness. Yeah. And that's kind of what the whole Hindu religion and like all in once it one thing is everything is the same. Mm-hmm. It's all created with the same. It all starts with the same seed, and then that seed grows into different plants and trees. Basically, I mean, yeah. as, a, as a general uh, verbiage of it. One thing I did find interesting when you were reading about all the gods, you know how the number seven kept coming up. Seven, mm-hmm. seven continents, seven colors of the rainbow. So, you know, all these different sevens. This happens to be our 97th episode. Oh. Ooh. Synchronicity. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> and then what is, what is 97 to numerology? Nine plus seven is 16. One six. plus six is? Seven. That's right. Synchronicity. Synchronicity. 
We're in sync. (laughs) 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 So I think Eli would be really bummed that he missed this episode because there were so many sex jokes that could have been made at certain points Mm -hmm. in this episode. (laughs) Oh, yeah. He missed out big time. (laughs) We had a clean episode for once. We did. Chad and I were over here giggling like (laughs) schoolgirls, but (laughs) we didn't say anything. Eli would have said something. (laughs) What was it you said the other day? We were like a computer. What? Amy's? Amy's the motherboard, right? And then I'm the... The hard drive, and then Eli is the random access memory, or the random word generator, if you will. <laughs> and Chad's the processor. Yeah. So what am I, the floppy disk? <laughs> <laughs> You're the processor. You're the one that will turn it around and break it down for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You're the CPU. Yeah, he's like, I think Eli is the random word generator. And I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. PlayStation. (laughs) Yep. Styrofoam helmets. Purple. (laughs) We love you, Eli. Um, Now, being that this is our 97th episode, that means our 100th episode is coming up quick. So I want to put a request out there for our listeners. If you want to send us messages, record a message and send it to us, we'll play it. Tell us about what you enjoy about the podcast, what's your favorite episode, um, anything you want us to cover that we haven't covered, any corrections you have for us. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to make the 100th episode a fun episode. We've got a few things lined up already. Um, I've ordered us cookies from an awesome bakery up in New Ooh. York. I'm really looking forward to these cookies you mm-hmm. speak of. Uh, How Sweet It Is Bakery. You should look it up on uh, sweet it is Facebook. Oh, that's, a, that's a clever, clever name. She's got some amazing cookies and cakes and stuff that she makes. There's um, a bakery here in town called the Waving Wheat Sure Smells Sweet Bakery. And I think they're gluten-free. <laughs> 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 Waving Wheat Bakery is actually really good. I like their scones. Yeah. Um, but anyway, send that to us at our email, umpnormalcy at gmail.com or on our Facebook or any of that stuff. Because we'd love to share it, add a little bit more information to our podcast. Um, plus, we love to hear from our listeners. I know we already have eight, one email that we've got to read. Yeah, I figured we are going to read that on if we could fit it in our 100th episode. Oh, definitely. Be a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in fact, when I read this email, I was like, this is the most epic email I've ever received. And I, Don't worry, I'm, Chase. We'll get to it. <laughs> I'm excited to read it. Um, review us on Instagram. or Instagram, Review us on um, your favorite podcast app. If there is a spot to review, I know some of them don't have a spot to review. If yours doesn't have an area to review podcasts, go on to our Facebook page and leave us a review there. Um, we'll read those on the podcast. Um, you could email us a review and we could read it. Yeah. yeah. We like to hear nice things about ourselves. It, it inflates our ego and makes us feel good. <laughs> and it keeps us going. It's our fuel. Ugh. No, just kidding. We would do this if nobody was listening because I think we enjoy it way too much. I think we just like sitting around and talking to each other. I mean, hell, this is what our conversations basically were before we started the podcast. Yeah, just on game nights. Yeah. We'd be talking about this stuff anyway. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we just now have microphones in front of our faces, but it's our normal conversations. 
Um, and we do research now. We didn't used to do research. <laughs> we just make up random facts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, I did. I've always researched into stuff. But yeah, pull out the phone and all Google magic. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we appreciate you guys so much. Next week we'll come at you with some some more stories and some awesome tellings of these gods and goddesses that we've talked about. Um, it's really good to get to know who the gods and goddesses are before we do the stories so that it when makes sense. When you hear the names, sense. you're yeah. like, not like, wait, huh? Who's that? Wait, Why is what? that person important? What who are the we, fuck yeah, is that? Yeah. Huh? Who? What? When? Where? How? Um, I'm so excited about getting to some of these stories. Some of these stories are great. <laughs> <laughs> um, be sure to like us, follow us, message us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, we are UMP Normalcy or Unearthing Paranormalcy. You can find us either way. Uh, we've also got our website, unearthingparanormalcy.com, where you can listen to episodes, you can buy merchandise, you can link to our f- in our, our Patreon page. Um, I need to get on there. I think I'm going to do a page for our Patreon podcast to just kind of break down the yeah the episodes that we've done. Not that I've posted much of them. I need to get them posted. But it's like... I need some Patreon so that I feel <laughs> empowered to do it. <laughs> um, what else? I think that's all. I think so. Yeah. I only have done this um, 97 times. <laughs> website, Facebook group. <laughs> uh, Social media. Yeah, I think yeah, that's everything. I think that's everything. Yeah. So we look forward to telling you more stories in the next episode. And again, we appreciate you all for listening. And until next time, keep digging.